Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is Series 2, Episode 2. Lobotomies. I've been reading Bill Bryson's brilliant book called The Body. I've seen you thumbing through it, yeah. And there is a fascinating chapter on the brain. Okay. But a section that really appalled me was a bit about lobotomies. Okay. Various incidents and research had taken place in the mid to late 19th century to suggest that removing parts of the brain changed personalities. And then in the 1930s, it was a professor of neurology at the University of Lisbon in Portugal called Egas Monitz, who decided to build on that research and began cutting the frontal lobes of schizophrenics to see if it might quiet their troubled minds. Right. And this was the invention of the frontal lobotomy. And patients generally did become less violent, but they also routinely suffered massive irreversible loss of their personalities. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And he's, you know, he still received the Nobel Prize, though, in 1949. Good grief. What I'll say about lobotomies is I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Oh, that's funny. That's a Tom Waits quote, isn't it? It is. That's just reminded me. I dreamt of Tom Waits last night. Did you? Yeah, I had a really lovely dream. He was doing lovely singing. And I said, why don't you always sing nicely like that? And what did he reply? (laughs) He was very sweet about it. Was he? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what weird. What am I dreaming of Tom Waits? Anyway, a fan of Monitz's work was an American doctor called Walter Jackson Freeman, who essentially spent 40 years travelling the country performing lobotomies. Good grief. And he essentially lobotomised anyone who was presented before him. And on one tour, he lobotomised 225 people in 12 days. What? The actual hell? Yeah, and some of his patients were as young as four. Good grief. Yeah. He would insert a standard household ice pick into the brain through the eye socket. What? Tap it through the skull bone with a hammer and then wriggle it vigorously to sever the neural connections. Oh, wow, that sounds like DIY. I don't know about uh, surgery. This was all without gloves or surgical mask and in regular clothes. Oh, Oh, and by the way, he was a psychiatrist, not a surgeon. Sorry, when was this? Uh, this would I think this was in the 50s. In the 1950s? Yeah. That is ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? Two-thirds of his patients received no benefit or were worse off. Um, between 2% and 15% died. It's unclear, actually. It, it depends on what you read. Um, but the bit that really interested me was that he also worked on Rosemary Kennedy, the okay. sister of John F. Kennedy. Okay. She was 23 right. and described as vivacious, if a little headstrong, and perhaps prone to mood swings, like most of us. And she's reported to have had learning difficulties, although not severe. Right. And her father had her lobotomised without consulting his wife. Good grief. And the lobotomy pretty much destroyed her. And she spent the rest of her life in care homes with not only no personality, but unable to speak 
and incontinent. That is absolutely terrible, isn't it? I know, it? it's absolutely appalling and Freeman continued to perform lobotomies well into his 70s and he only retired in 1967. That's crazy, isn't it? That just goes to illustrate that us humans think we're so smart because, you know, some bloke walked on the moon sometime and we invented computers, but we're still really quite thick. I, I mean, mean that's not that long ago. It's I mean, not that long ago and it's it's medieval the in its The stupidity and, it? and the barbaric nature of it is, is, is shocking. Yeah, poor Rosemary Kennedy, She was it was hushed up and swept under the carpet for fear of it affecting her siblings' political careers. Yeah. Although her sister Eunice apparently was close with her and and Eunice Kennedy is credited with starting the Special Olympics, I guess inspired by her sister, maybe. Blimey. Eunice Kennedy Shriver is oh. the mother of oh, Marie, Pam Shriver. Maria Shriver. Ah, oh, Maria Shriver. Yeah. Pam Shriver is related. I'll get on to that in a minute. But right. you know who Maria Shriver is, don't you? She's a journalist and she was a news anchor. And, of course, former wife of Arnie Schwarzenegger. Oh, right, OK. Do you know, I, I had no idea that he was a Republican. I just assumed he was a Democrat because he was an actor, I suppose. Oh, and yeah, because he came from Hollywood. You think everybody's a Democrat, yeah. but no, he was He a... was a Republican, and obviously the Kennedys were a famous Democrat family. Yeah, his mother-in-law, Eunice Kennedy, she supported him during his run okay. for governor. He was actually quite, he yeah. was reasonably liberal for a Republican yeah. in as far as he was quite concerned with the green issues, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. But yeah, getting back to um, Maria Shriver is fourth cousin of Pam Shriver. OK, a bit distant. Yeah, the tennis player ranked number three in the world in the 80s. And she partnered with Martina Navratilova and won 79 doubles titles in her career. And get this, she was also married to... Go on. George Lazenby. Get out of town. Between 2002 and 2008. Um, she was 40 and he would have been 63 when wow. they married, no judgment. And they went on to have three children. Right, talking of George Lazenby, mm -hmm. obviously most famous for playing the role of James Bond after Sean Connery left yeah. the role in 1968. And apparently Bond producer Albert R. Broccoli that can't be right. Is it Broccoli? Or is it's, it... Well, it's Broccoli. I mean, broccoli. that's the... Yeah. I know, it's a crazy surname, isn't it? That is a crazy surname. Um, anyway, he met Lazenby for the first time while they were getting their hair cut. Oh, right. So it's a chance encounter. It's a chance encounter at the same barbershop. I once um, had my hair cut and uh, in the chair next to me was the fella there from... Um, what were they called? They... Not Coldplay, the Scottish ones. Travis. Travis. There you go. Fran. And Fran Healy. Fran Healy. And didn't he have the Hoxton yes. shark invented yes. on him or something like that? That's my claim to fame when Aww. it comes to, uh, to haircuts. Anyway. He was a model, wasn't he, George Lazenby? You're absolutely right. And Broccoli, or Broccoli, <laughs> later saw Lazenby in the Big Fry commercial and he felt that he could possibly be a Bond. And he invited old Lazenby to do a screen test. Oh. Imagine that. You're advertising some sort of frying pan or something and then you get the call to a uh, screen test for James Bond. I mean, that's <laughs> one hell of a leap, is it not? Out of the frying pan and into the fire, maybe. And Lazenby dressed for the part by sporting several sartorial Bond elements, oh, right. such as a Rolex Submariner wristwatch and a Savile Row suit. Right. And his position as the new Bond was consolidated when Lazenby accidentally punched a professional wrestler <laughs> who was acting as stunt coordinator in the face. Oh, brilliant. And this impressed Broccoli 
uh, with his ability to display aggression. And so he got the gig. How do you accidentally punch someone in the face? Oh, well, I guess it was a staged fight. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the choreography went a bit and boom, in the face. That's how. That's w yeah. what I'm taking from uh, this okay, particular yeah. story. I might be wrong. Um, <laughs> and Bond director Peter R. Hunt later said, quote, We wanted someone who oozed sexual assurance, and we think this fellow has that. Just wait till the women see him mm. on screen. I'm not saying he's an actor. There is a great deal of difference between an actor and a film star. Didn't they find Gary Cooper when he was an electrician? Yes. He yes, asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, dear old Lazenby was probably picked uh, more for his yeah. uh, aesthetic quality than yeah. his acting the ability. Women, the women will love him. And in July 1969, after making On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm. Lazenby returned home to Australia to see his parents. Oh, yeah. And Lazenby said he intended to make the next Bond film, mm. which was to be The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm -hmm. However, by November 1969, Lazenby said he had no longer wished to play another Bond role, saying, quote, The producers made me feel like I was mindless. They disregarded everything I suggested simply because I hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years, unquote. His co-star Diana Rigg was among many who commented on this decision. She said, the role made Sean Connery a millionaire. It made Sean Connery. I truly don't know what's happening in George's mind. Yeah, well, they must have all been thinking, what? You're not going to do another Bond film? This is, this is your golden ticket, mate. What are you doing? But Lazenby said, quote, I much prefer being a car salesman to a stereotyped James Bond. My parents think I'm insane. Everybody thinks I'm insane. Yeah, I yeah. think you're insane. Yeah. And I bet he's full of regret because he never really did anything of note no, after that. No, he didn't. Um, in 1973, Lazenby said he was flat broke mm. when he went to Hong Kong to meet Bruce Lee and producer Raymond Chow. They ended up offering him $10,000. That's about $61,000 today to appear in a film with Lee, oh. which, was, which was going to be the Golden Harvest film, Game of Death. Right. So he had a little... Um... So he looked chance. like so he had a little chance. He was given a bit of a break. However, this collapsed after Lee's sudden death. Oh, um, Lazenby was actually meant to meet Lee for lunch on the day that Bruce oh. Lee died. Oh wow! Um, Lazenby later admitted he'd acted stupidly. He said it went to my head. Everything that was happening to me. But remember, it's my first film. Now what I've got to do is live down my past, convince people I'm not the same person who made a fool of himself all those years ago. I can do it. All I need is the chance. Oh wow, so he did live to regret it. That smacks of uh, regret, doesn't it? I think there's a lesson there to remain humble, maybe. Remain Humility. humble and, and, and more importantly, if you're offered the role of James Bond, I would probably think about taking it. Yeah. In 1978, Lazenby took out an advertisement in Variety offering himself for acting work. Oh, that's embarrassing, Which isn't it? Is, a, is a bit desperate, isn't it? I mean, what a position to find yourself in, yeah. being a former Bond and then having yeah. to actually put an advert in yeah. Variety magazine. Um, his agent, Ronan O'Reilly, had a lot to do with him leaving the James Bond franchise as he said that the secret agent would be archaic in the liberated 1970s. Oh, wow. Little did he know. Yeah. I mean, talk about getting it wrong. Yeah, that is what one might describe as a bum steer. And continuing with Ronan O'Rahilly, mm. O'Rahilly was a mover and a shaker, moving from County Louth in Ireland to London in 1957 mm. and running a nightclub in Soho called Scene, oh. where... Interestingly, 
1963, the Rolling Stones played mm. and Alan Price of the Animals said of O'Rahilly, quote, Ronan knew how things were done. He was very hip. He really fancied himself, but he had a lot of get up and go and verve and he helped to launch the animals. Ah, oh, now speaking of the animals, actually, may I interject? You may, please do. So the animals formed in 1962 by Alan Price. I've been reading a lot about him and his career, largely because we watched Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan film. We did. Um, recently. The Pennebaker film, yeah. yeah. And Alan Price is in it being a bit a bit pissed and awkward and embarrassing, <laughs> isn't he, really? Oh, I quite like uh, well, him, but yeah, I do see what you mean. Yeah. He'd left the animals at that point. That's right. In 65, um, due to artistic differences. And he says a fear of flying. Oh. Yeah. And um, he went on to form the Alan Price set, who were equally as successful as the animals. And um, Eric Burden, the singer from the animals yeah carried on with eric burden and the animals um which consisted of some old and new faces one of whom being andy summers good grief from the police yeah who joined in 1968 in 1968 yeah i thought this was really interesting as well so by 1968 eric burden and the animals had also split okay uh, numerous reasons have been cited for the breakup the most famous of which involved an aborted Japanese tour. Okay. Did you know about this? No, this sounds intriguing. So the tour had been scheduled for September 1968, but it was delayed until November after difficulty obtaining visas. Right. Um, and only a few dates into the tour, the promoters, who the band didn't know, were Yakuza. Right. Do you know what Yakuza is? No. It's a, essentially the Japanese mafia. Oh, right, okay. Right, so... Right. The, so they were promoting the tour. Oh, right, okay. The Japanese Mafia. And they kidnapped the band's manager <laughs> and threatened him at gunpoint to write an IOU for $25,000 to cover losses incurred by the tour's delay. Good grief. Sorry, I laughed, but that can't have been too pleasant, can it? Blimey. Yeah. yeah. So, get this. Correctly surmising that his captors couldn't read English, he added a note to the IOU that it was written under duress. Wow. And the Yakuza released him, but warned that he and the band would have to leave Japan the next day or be killed. Flipping heck. The animals promptly fled the country, leaving all of their tour equipment behind. Good grief. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. Yeah, going back to Ronan O'Rahilly. Oh, yes. Um, George Lazenby's uh, agent with a certain lack of, shall we say, foresight. Yeah, the very one. Interesting thing about him is he created Radio Caroline. Oh! Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did this because he was also managing acts, including yes. Georgie Fame, right. but he couldn't get any airplay for Georgie Fame. He tried the BBC and he tried Radio Luxembourg, um, but it became apparent that they were only playing records by major record labels. And in fact, in the case of Radio Luxembourg, the record labels were paying Luxembourg to play their records. So if the big radio stations won't play your music, set up your own radio station. That's exactly right. That's the exact opposite. If you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. If you can't join them, beat them. Yeah, apparently the bosses at Radio Luxembourg delighted in showing him the programme schedules, which were block booked by the major labels. Right. Um, so independents had no chance of airplay. Yeah. Apparently, O'Rahilly told the Luxembourg directors, 
Quote, if after managing my own artists, I have to create my own record label because nobody will record them, and if I then find that no radio station will play their music, it seems the only thing now is to have my own radio station. Hence the creation of Radio Caroline. Good for him. And here's a little interesting aside, or at least it's bordering on interesting. Um, Radio Caroline was largely funded by a financier called John Sheffield. Mm. Mean anything to you? No. Not surprised it didn't mean anything to me. His niece is Samantha Cameron, who oh. married old Dave. Oh, David Cameron. Yeah. One in a long line of arseholes who've <laughs> up the country. I've got something very interesting about Radio Caroline. Oh, I. And it brings us full circle. Wow. Which we love a full circle, don't we? Oh, I love nothing more than a full circle. O'Rahilly named Radio Caroline. Yeah. After Caroline Kennedy. Oh. The daughter of John F. Kennedy. Well, how about that? Yeah. On a fundraising trip to the US, O'Rahilly reportedly saw a Life magazine photograph of Kennedy and his children in the Oval Office. And in the photo, Caroline Kennedy and her brother John F. Kennedy Jr. are apparently dancing in the Oval Office as their father looks on, an activity which O'Rahilly reportedly interpreted as a playful, jovial disruption of government. And this was exactly the image he wanted for his station. And there we have it. We're right back to where we began, sort of, with the Kennedys. With Rosemary Kennedy getting lobotomised. Yeah, full circle. Full I think, circle. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.